and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. Today, we had the privilege of hosting a super interesting conversation with Omri Ben-David, a general partner at Viola Ventures, which is one of the largest venture capital firms in Israel. Omri started his career as an operator and then transitioned into investment banking after graduating from Columbia Business School. He joined Goldman Sachs in 2008 and spent nine years there in their fintech and tech investment banking business, reaching the level of senior vice president. In 2017, he moved back to Israel and has quickly developed a stellar reputation as having an eye for great founders and as giving great guidance to the best entrepreneurs in the country. He currently sits on the board of Alvier, Lightrix, Payzen, and more. In today's episode, we talked about how Omri's unique perspective as an investment banker helps him now guide entrepreneurs. We also talked about Omri's vision for embedded finance, his breakdown of the various verticals in fintech from insuretech to Web3, and most importantly, what in his mind makes a great founder. And with that, a warm welcome to Omri Ben-David from Viola Ventures. Uh, Omri, welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Hey, Josh. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm in uh, Tel Aviv, uh, Israel. Awesome. You know, it's a, it's a unique privilege to uh, have someone in the podcast that I've actually uh, pitched a few fintech companies. So it's definitely... Uh, Definitely privileged me to have you on, have you on and interviewing you here. Yeah, definitely my uh, my pleasure. You know, we go uh, a long way back. I haven't invested yet, just full disclosure, but uh, it will come. <laughs> not yet, not yet, not yet, <laughs> not yet. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I guess let's get going with just a bit about your background and how did you get interested in fintech? Yeah, so I'll start from the uh, from the early beginning, I guess. Look, I'm Israeli, as you can tell by my name. Um, I grew up uh, internationally, so uh, France did my high school in Germany. Um, then I joined uh, the Israeli Defense Forces. You know, it's a mandatory service in Israel. Uh, served for four years as a company commander in a, a combat unit. Uh, then computer science undergrad, which I'm sure we'll get back to. Uh, and then I worked for a software startup from its inception in uh, operating capacity. So started as a first uh, call it sales engineer and uh, grew up to lead uh, go to market. So sales marketing and uh, and biz dev. And we ultimately exited that company. We sold it in 2006. And then I've decided uh, to move to New York and pursue an MBA. So I did my MBA uh, starting in 2007 at Columbia uh, Business School. Uh, and then uh, uh, in the midst of Columbia Business School, I joined uh, Goldman Sachs and I worked there for about uh, uh, nine years. So in the TMT group, uh, tech, media and telecom, basically uh, covering companies in B2B software and uh, emerging fintech and doing anywhere from uh, M&A, taking companies public, debt underwriting, activism, ray defense, but also investments in uh, in later stage companies like uh, Uber, Spotify, ZocDoc, and uh, and others, um, two interesting things to say about about that. First, uh, as you know, you know I was an MBA student and started at Goldman in two thousand and eight. The two thousand and eight financial crisis was actually uh, at the heels of of a, a deep crisis that stemmed from financial institutions, right, from incumbents. So uh, reputational damage across uh, Wall Street and banks in particular, you know, for grading uh, uh, asset-backed securities and, and others. Uh, and that's where I believe the fintech revolution started, which we can, we can touch on uh, later as well. And two is, you know, VC in general. So, you know, Goldman is, uh, is your classic uh, sell-side, uh, I think, top bank. Uh, and then I've, I really wanted to move into the, uh, the buy-side. 
uh, and when the uh, Columbia, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, Viola Ventures opportunity came about, I returned to Israel uh, to pursue it and have been here uh, for about uh, six years and again, covering uh, emerging fintech and, uh, and B2B uh, software here as well. So I guess what's interesting to me is hearing about how your perspective on fintech differed from your time during this you know, 2008 financial crisis, recovering, seeing these new fintechs popping up while you're in TMT at Goldman versus now and now that you're investing in these seed stage companies, kind of how has is, how is that changed and how has that shifted? Yeah. So we use the term uh, fintech revolution and we really believe in that uh, in that term. And again, it goes back to 2008. Think about it. You, you had to go and, and if you wanted financial services, uh, the vast majority of them uh, in financial services and insurance actually came from uh, old school uh, incumbents that, by the way, did a, a good job with uh, uh, transforming themselves over the year. But 2008 really started this fintech revolution where the way we look at it is, is sort of you look at periods of times, how uh, fintech evolved and how new verticals within fintech kind of emerged. Right. So I take you back to kind of uh, 2010. Uh, you know, you started seeing cross-border payments like uh, Payoneer in Israel, and of course, PayPal that has been has been around for a few years, uh, remittances like Rewires and others. Then you fast forward to kind of the 2010 to 2014, uh, neo-lenders started to come about. You know, I'll mention some Israeli names like uh, Fundbox and Bluevine. Uh, Wealth Management 1.0 has, uh, has started, and we talked about Wealthfront and, and Betterment and some of the uh, uh, of the others. Uh, and uh, we started seeing kind of fintech APIs uh, emerging. Then fast forward to 2014 to 2018, InsureTech 1.0 emerged. Uh, you know, we saw digital transformation across, uh, and, and I'm proud to say Israel was one of the leading uh, in that uh, category. So companies like Next Insurance uh, in the uh, SMB insurance, Hippo in the homeowners insurance, and Lemonade in the um, uh, renters insurance. Uh, we saw almost all the neo and challenger banks emerging, uh, like Chime, N26, Monzo, et cetera, in that uh, time period, and started to see like neo traders, like eToro and others. So you've seen an evolution of more and more uh, fintech categories emerging. Then I think we're right now in the area uh, of uh, 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 trends like uh, banking as a service, uh, vertical fintech, open banking, B2B payments, and others. Uh, and the future will, of course, hold, and we can talk about some investment thesis uh, later on, but more and more uh, exciting areas. So I think fintech kind of moved from uh, more of kind of a, a legacy uh, incumbent uh, type of uh, era into really kind of eating the world, so to speak, uh, and getting into different verticals and different applications in our uh, in our day-to-day -day lives, disrupting much more than just uh, you know plain vanilla financial services. Yeah, totally. I like how you break it down by the 1.0 of each vertical, right? Instead of saying overall, you know, we're in fintech 1.0, you're saying insuretech 1.0, wealth management 1.0. And that's that totally tracks. Um, I guess going back to your experience, so you are an interesting hybrid, right? Like you have also operating experience, but you also were nine years as a going up to being a VP at Goldman Sachs. How do you think that combination lends itself to your role as an investor or to an advisor to early stage companies? Yeah. So first I would say to the audience, you know, one thing I learned is that uh, when you become an investor, there isn't a, a one size kind of fits all, right? I think every person that wants to go into uh, investments and has the passion for it, 
uh, needs to build kind of their own uh, story or positioning uh, and find the match of the you know the right home uh, to kind of pursue that uh, that passion. And and there are many you know successful investors who were entrepreneurs who succeeded or entrepreneurs who failed. Uh, you know product people, executives, uh, CTOs, bankers, consultants, uh, etc. And in my mind, at least, the idea is you got to build a story. Like for every company, you got to build a story for yourself uh, and make that uh, uh, transition um, sort of speak for itself. So for me to address your question, I felt like my own story or my positioning was uh, had that kind of four legs to it. You know, so I mentioned earlier, you know, it starts with like the infrastructure, right? Being a computer science uh, undergrad at Tel Aviv uh, University, I felt uh is giving you uh, some solid background and, and footing and credibility with entrepreneurs. So that's one. The second one is the operating experience you mentioned. So leading go-to-market organization, you know, sales, marketing, biz dev, kind of working and leading in a, a company where you, we started zero and got into kind of a $10 million, give or take, uh, runway, uh, runway and really being in the trenches, I think, helped in that sense as well. Um, the third one is the banking. I think, you know, some people undermine kind of banking experience in my mind, you know, is the opportunity to see hundreds, if not thousands of companies, how they scale, what makes them successful, what sort of business model work, how to think about valuation, how to even understand the concept that not every dollar of revenue is, uh, you know, equals the same, right? People talk about subscription versus services versus transactional, uh, et cetera. And I think being able to uh, sit and advise you know, on transactions or in boardrooms uh, really gives you a great perspective. And I think it helped me. Uh, and the fourth one is, of course, investing. So, uh, you know, Goldman, I've mentioned, we've done investments out of the balance sheet, uh, more uh, later stage. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, I was also an investor at Y Combinator, kind of demo days and, and investing in some of the batches. And I think that also helps build, um, you know, credibility for your own passion and also a little bit of an experience of, of you know, great founders accepting your your angel money, although it's not big money, uh, but they see the value beyond your your money in terms of helping them in that uh, in that journey. So you were you were an angel investor at Y Combinator demo days. I was, yeah. When I was I at uh, Goldman in the early days, yeah, I I did uh, a few of them actually. I did. I did not know that. What uh, what were some interesting companies that came out of that? What were some interesting investments? Um, I can mention, uh, you know, second measure uh, was uh, was a great one on the West Coast uh, that got acquired by uh, Bloomberg not too long ago. Really uh, uh, great founders um, that uh, I worked with. Uh, Paper Space is one in Brooklyn that I'm uh, still a big believer in. Uh, that is uh, more in the cloud uh, infrastructure space, uh, and there were and there were a couple others. But I think again, it's um, it's not necessarily about what succeeded or failed. I think if you want to be an investor, you got to kind of uh, walk before you run. And I think for me today, as an interviewer um, that has, you know, that sees candidates and want them to kind of join us as a, as a platform, I think for me, it's um, it's something that is important. You know, you want to be an investor and, and demonstrate uh, why and that you've actually, you know, kind of jumped into the uh, the pool. Yeah, that's awesome. That That's Cool to know. I had no idea. Um, so I guess in line with that, maybe since the very beginning, maybe it's just since my experience with you, but you seem to have always, always have a great eye for talent for great founders. What in your mind enables you to make that differentiation and, and what 
what does differentiate between a great founder and just a good one or, or an average one? Yeah. And as you mentioned, um, you know, Viola Ventures, where, where I'm a GP, is an early stage uh, fund, right? So we invest mostly in seed companies. And it's also worth mentioning to the audience, we invest in what we call Israeli-related uh, companies. That's our mandate. You know, 90% of our limited partners, our LPs, are actually non-Israeli. And they're, they're believing in this uh, ecosystem and want to and wanna play it. So we invest in Israeli founders um, globally. Um, and I think, you know, to kind of address your question, when you're, when you're a seed investor, uh, and there are two people or three people and basically a PowerPoint presentation, you know, 70, 80% of the decision is really about the team. It sounds like a cliche, but it's true. And then the other 20, 30% is what we call the vector, right? Because it's very hard to uh, understand or, or estimate kind of what category and what are the real modes that are going to be built. And uh, you kind of have to take a bet with the team that they will figure it out as we go, as long as the vector is the is the right one, even if you go 20 or 30 degrees to each uh, direction. So I think when we're looking at a team, um, you know, we are trying to find a team that is complementary to one another. So I'll give you some uh, some examples. You know, you want to have an angle that one is more technical and the other is more uh, kind of a go to market. And maybe there's a third that does uh, more of kind of a product expertise. Um, you want them to have some domain expertise, right? Or, or be very convincing why they've kind of um, uh, worked in a different domain, but now they want to solve a problem that maybe they've never faced, right? Which is also a big uh, criteria for us. Then you want to look into, our, is their experience not just a vertical, but is it more of a, of a B2B experience and now they want to do B2C or vice versa, right? So you want to understand whether they've sort of experienced the persona or the type of, uh, of market that they're going after. And then there are the, the usual you know, traits, uh, we want them to be aggressive and fundable, and we want them to be big dreamers and hungry and demonstrate you know, along the way some professionalism and integrity. Uh, and, and most critical, I think, is, is the ability to spend uh, time together. I think if you look at some of the industry's investment in, uh, in the hype days of 2020 and 2021, rounds were happening so fast that it was harder to um, really spend quality time. And I think that's equally important for the investor, but also for the entrepreneurs. Because if you kind of think about the pre-investment period is really a much shorter duration than the post-investment period. And if you wanna, you know, and if you wanna use this uh, uh, analogy of, uh, of a marriage, you gotta make sure that uh, the entrepreneurs, the founders and the investors kind of uh, choose one another uh, to walk this uh, journey together in its ups and downs and everything that is coming with it. So I think, Ultimately, at the end of this process, you got to feel very comfortable with the team. They need to feel very comfortable with you and the ability to uh, really uh, work together, nurture one, one uh, each other and help out where you can, I think is, uh, is critical. Yeah, I guess in line with that, uh, what are some common pitfalls that you see founders falling into and what would be one main piece of advice that you would give to a soon-to-be or a new founder? Yeah, look, I would say... You know, maybe three things. One is I kind of touched on it. Look, it's a very long journey. I mean, they kind of know it, but I don't think they they understand it uh, very early on. You need resiliency and stamina, and you really need to choose uh, your partners, both in the company, you know, kind of your your co-founders, your early employees, and others, and your investors very very carefully. So as I mentioned, because it's so long, and because there are going to be those ups and downs, really like a like this roller coaster. You know, you have to understand that this pre-investment period is short, and the post-investment is what's gonna is what's gonna matter. So that's 
that's sort of one. Don't don't be short-sighted. Uh, you know, take into account that there'll be um, positivity, negativity. You know, the highs are very high, the lows are very lows, and that's just the way the way it's going to go. The second thing I would say is always, as you sort of build your company and you build your products, always kind of think about what are your moats, right? What will be most uh, the hardest to replicate? What's your unique IP or know-how? And it could be many things. It could be the product. It could be your, your data set. It could be your regulatory licenses. It could be your market share grab. It could be the partners you sign or the channels uh, that you have. But you always have to think in the lens of why wouldn't or how long would it take somebody else to come and uh, and copy what I do and what sort of modes I'm going to have to make it harder for everybody else uh, to uh, to replicate. And again, taking into consideration that any software can be copied or replicated within a couple of years, but still you can build uh, very nice uh, uh, modes around your business. Um, and the third thing, you know, I kind of advise any founder is kind of you know drowning drowning in this um you know day-to-day -day stuff but try to take the time to think you know to kind of disconnect uh try to you know go on this um uh you know offsite either alone or with your co-founders or you know a time in the day one hour where you can really take the time and uh uh and get outside of the the minutiae of the day and really think about where are you headed you know build this large vision um that one trick I say is, you know, maybe as an ex-banker, but imagine your IPO positioning. And I know it's long ways ahead, but draw backwards to today and see, okay, what do I need to do? How do I build a scalable business model? What team do I need around me? What sort of value proposition do I have? You know, how many products, how many geographies do I need to be in? Uh, how big is my category? What's my TAM? Uh, how do I increase my category uh, and maybe upsell or penetrate uh, adjacencies? How do I get to $100 million in revenue? And I know some of those things uh, sound, uh, uh, you know, kind of premature, but I think the more you have that mindset, mindset, the more you have this North Star, the more you're focused about, you know, driving towards it and making sure that you're uh, that you are on uh, on target. Yeah, that's awesome. Dream big, right? Dream big. Um, you have, to, by the way, it's competitive out there. You have to. Yeah. And I like that. I like the idea about constantly thinking about moats. You know, in terms of we actually discussed this in a class recently, where uh, in terms of generative AI, how all these companies are popping up, like application layers on top of you know the LLMs, and everyone's talking about how these aren't going to be great business models because anyone can build an application on an LLM, right? Um, so your moats are limited. You got to shy away from those uh, hypes. Look, every year or two, so in every cycle in your class, there is something that is now like super hyped, you know, and you can you can have many different uh, examples. It could be NFTs, you know, two or three years ago. It could be generative AI uh, today. Uh, and there's always, you know, there's always something that is, that you know it's a hype, but again, it's always about thinking about, you know, your fundamentals, like, what problem am I solving? Is it big enough? And is it in a market that matters? If if you can't answer those like very basic questions, you're currently, you know, you're probably off there kind of the wrong, the wrong path. That's um that's the way I would think about it. And look, don't get me wrong, founders are brave. They are, you know, they're going out there, they're doing something that um you know, it takes a lot of uh, of courage with a very big opportunity costs, especially, you know, whether it's Wharton or, or anywhere else in the world, right? They're choosing to wake up every morning and do this uh, for this big dream and big vision. 
Um, my my only advice is to make sure a they're doing it for the right reasons, and b they are kind of always thinking about the fundamentals. Because if there isn't a, a business moat or big problems you're solving, I think it's going to be a very an even tougher road than than it's going to be. You know, even if those questions are are clear. Yeah. So I guess in line with with different trends and different aspects, I guess within the fintech industry. So you've led some interesting Web3 investments, whether it's uh, Nylos or Addressable IO. Um, and then on the other side, you have some more very traditional finance, I guess not very traditional, but some traditional finance plays like Alvier. Do you view the transition from, let's call it traditional finance, financial infrastructure to Web3, do you view that as more of a time horizon kind of evaluation where in the short term, maybe we'll have some more embedded fintech, you know, banking as a service kind of plays and then transition into more Web3. So you want to invest in companies that are building infrastructure or is it more a segmentation question where the Web3 companies will take certain segments and then, you know, maybe younger segments and and these companies will, will harness that trend. Kind of just curious to hear your thoughts there on those different investments, different sides of theses. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so it's a, it's a long question, so uh, it's going to be a long answer. Uh, bear with me, but uh, yeah. but uh, I will I will I will try to tackle these uh, these sort of two big buckets. So first, around Web three, uh, or in general, I don't think I don't see a generational kind of segmentation, right? Uh, although, admittedly, you know, early adopters will typically be more open minded and experimental in kind of the the younger generation. As you look at some of the uh, uh, the web uh, three, but in general, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody needs to build kind of a single generation quote unquote solution as it will make kind of the value proposition time limited, right? So if you go to a finance course and you say, okay, I have a, a DCF, but a terminal value equals zero, I think you and the audience kind of know what does that uh, mean? So it's it's not a good advice to kind of invest in something that is is a shorter uh, horizon, even if it's like 15 or, or 20 years, right? Because you're thinking about, I'm investing in seed, IPO in seven to 10 years, but the IPO investor will look for the next 10 years, right? So you, you are looking at a 20 year horizon to uh, to begin with. Uh, so that's point number one. Then on, on Web3, look, I think this is, uh, again, back to uh, fundamentals. We are not investors in, in tokens for the token's sake. We have not done any institutional investments in NFTs or things like that, right? I think when you look about blockchain or Web3, it has two big value propositions um, that are hard to uh, uh, to fight against, right? One is blockchain is really the ability to transfer uh, value, and it could be you know whatever. It could be an NFT on your on your watch. It could be an NFT on a on a, on a monkey, but it could also be you know fiat or any type of uh, of token, whether it's uh, you know Bitcoin or whatever that may be, right? And you can transfer that value in a very uh, immediate. Uh, cheap and secure way, right? So I can transfer money to you, although we are in different sides of the Atlantic. And instead of using Swift, it would cost me, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks. I can transfer it to you and you'll see it in your wallet within, you know, seconds, right? So that has a big uh, power that I'm I'm a, I'm a believer in. And the second use case that I like is this uh, notion of smart contracts. So you can basically, you and I can execute transactions without trusting each other, without knowing each other in a very transparent type of uh, environment. 
which can be powerful in, in many uh, use cases, you know, from, uh, from uh, insurance to any type of other uh, transaction of, of, again, transfer of value that we are, uh, we are believers in. Now, 2022 and kind of uh, the good and bad of this industry, I think we've seen incidents, you know, like uh, NFX and others, but honestly, they were more fraud related than tech or market related, right? So the analogy I like, and, and I didn't make it up, but it's not like people stopped investing in hedge funds after the Madoff incident, right? And I think actually, um, in fact, blockchain in 2022 actually made good progress or a big leap with Ethereum 2.0 and the ability to make it more scalable and secure, et cetera, that I think actually helps us. And it's driving the industry to be more compliant and more secure and more kind of um, protected in a sense uh, that I think will bring uh, will bring out very interesting applications and use cases. So long story short, I believe Web3 will become a platform that will allow uh, builders to kind of launch applications on use cases on top of it. And we did we made those two investments you referenced. They're both Web3 infrastructure. One is Nylos and the other one is addressable. Nylos is basically tackling you know, banking services including on-ramping and off-ramping and everything is kind of compliant, auditable and secure way. And addressable is really about kind of a marketing stack. So think about your audience today. You have a Telegram group, 40,000 people. You can't even tell Josh what geographies those 40,000 people are, are coming from, let alone uh, who has a wallet, uh, who are the kind of the whales, like who has, you know, wealth above a certain threshold. And within those wallets, who likes you know, Nike or sports clothes versus specific uh, uh, sports team or, or music, et cetera. So you're really getting that segmentation and the ability to build campaigns around them. So I'll pause here before going into Alvier because it's an interesting segue, but uh, but that's that's our thinking about uh, Web3. So Alvier, uh, and Alvier is actually, I'm going to close the loop with, uh, uh, with uh, blockchain with Alvier uh, at the end of this. But Alvier's basically is a very different thesis uh, in embedded finance that we are uh, big believers in, all right? So if you kind of think about 20 years ago, you wanted to open a bank account, uh, you'd go to a brick and mortar, I don't know, a Chase, and you'll go to the teller and you'll ask and you'll get a checking account, a savings account, you know, your checkbook, a credit card, uh, whatever, right? 10 years ago, I mentioned it kind of between 2013 and 2015, all the neobanks emerged. And neobanks, they were basically you know, kind of no brick and mortar, digital transformation, mobile first types of, of uh, banking services, right? So very slick, very cool. The issue with them is that you you can fall on the, the kind of the biggest pitfall in consumer fintech, which is your LTV over CAC. And it's very, very hard to then pay for the N plus one consumer that will move their bank account from your traditional bank account to the neo bank and make it your main bank account, right? With your salary in it, uh, et cetera. And I think that's what we're going to see a lot of uh, consolidation in that uh, in that space. So moving or fast forwarding to uh, today, we uh, have made uh, an investment in a company called Alvier. Alvier is basically benefiting from uh, all worlds. They're going after the largest brands in the US and globally. So it's public that they're already uh, powering uh, Boost Mobile or Coppel, you know, the retail store, and basically allowing any brand to become a neobank. And this brand, uh, so they're providing the regulatory framework, they're providing the software stack, they can even provide the mobile application. And what you get out of it is those brands, you know, they already have the trust with their uh, audiences. 
they have the engagement, right? They can have stores, they can have online, they send them a bill uh, every month, for example. Uh, and they have the ability to increase their revenue stream, increase their stickiness, get more data, uh, and basically work with their consumers on the uh, and offering them financial services. And they can select what financial services they want to offer. So they can be checking savings, credit card, it can be loyalty points, it can be lending. Uh, and by the way, they have a partnership with Coinbase because they can offer kind of, you know, embedded uh, uh, crypto uh, solutions if they're like as well. So what you benefit from is um, you don't need to go and chase kind of the N plus one consumer because that N plus one consumer already exists within that uh, B2B2C uh, business model, right? And that I think tackles this issue in a much uh, more elegant way for both the, the brands, its uh, audiences, and for Alvier uh, providing that type of, uh, of infrastructure. Yeah, that's great. Cool. And I guess my next question is, Alongside Alvier, you've invested in some companies that are in some pretty sticky regulatory landscapes. And as someone who's been an operator in, an op- in a regulated industry, I can tell you it's, it's, an, it's not great. It's hard. It's tough. There's a lot of things to navigate, a lot of questions. So how do you think about that as an investor, about trusting especially Israeli founders who might not necessarily have all the ins and outs of the regulatory landscape in the United States? How do you consider that as an investor and how do you help them or help these founders navigate those questions? Yeah, for sure. So look, uh, fintech is obviously, as, as you mentioned, is an area that is often uh, regulated. Um, we view this as uh, there is an advantage and there are disadvantages that uh, come with it. Uh, and of course, it needs to be understood and diligenced and, uh, and of course, you know, enforced or you know, be compliant with uh, post-investment. The con I would say is that you have this set of boundaries that you need to follow, right? So you need to hire the right team. You need to be a, to make sure that you have, you know, the right uh, legal framework, uh, compliance executives, uh, etc. Uh, that uh, that you know, kind of operate within those uh, specific boundaries and not not cross them because that could have a very big uh, you know adverse impact on your business. The pro is that you, like everybody else, have this set of boundaries. Uh, so you're basically competing in kind of the same uh, sandbox and you're creating a moat. So I talked about this earlier. So for example, if I'm an investor in InsureTech, and I am a company called Faye that does uh, consumer travel uh, insurance, check them out with Faye.com, um, ending the commercial here. Uh, but essentially, they have licenses across the US to be both you know, an MGA and a TPA because they're handling their own claims. I know that the next best thing that will want to launch their own kind of a consumer travel insurance uh, brand will need at least two or three years to actually even get to those level of licenses that uh, that Faye has. Or they can buy a carrier, right? But that's that could be prohibitively expensive uh, for some of those uh, startups. So regulatory framework, they don't concern us per se, but of course they require, you know, the attention, the expertise. Uh, and I think us as, uh, as investors, they've done many things in that framework, uh, feel pretty, pretty comfortable with it and, and can be helpful. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Faye, you made some big investments in, in a couple of consumer fintech companies, Landa and, and Faye. Uh, what are some keys to go-to-market strategies that you've seen work to get around that nasty, you know, CAC LTV issue that you spoke about earlier that neobanks tend to, tend to deal with? 
Yeah, exactly. So look, I think I think if you if you look at consumer fintech, like I said, the LTV over CAC is the deadliest of uh, of equations, right? It really is. And what we are typically looking for is some sort of a distribution edge uh, combined with you know value delivery and business model that makes it a no brainer. So. If you think about, you know, if your strategy is I'm going to pay Google and Facebook, that's not a sustainable strategy. They're going to, you know, price their um, ads to perfection to make sure that they make sufficient money uh, and you uh, kind of at that threshold where you're not really leaving, but uh, but you're not left with a lot of uh, margin behind them. So you'll be looking at other distribution edges that will really make you uh, kind of work uh, around it. So. What we'll be looking for kind of in terms of KPIs, you know, LTV over CAC that is uh, over three or four X, uh, or importantly, payback in the first transaction, if it's a transactional or, uh, you know, within uh, uh, up to 12 months. And that's all on, on gross profit, of course, not on revenue, which uh, some, uh, some make that uh, mistake. So you typically look at kind of a play around either like a B2B2C classic one, like I mentioned with uh, Alvier, um, in the uh, in the Fay example, it could be through uh, travel agents, uh, for example. That's uh, that's one way. The other one is if you embed your fintech solutions within kind of classical workflows. So you can look at vertical SaaS, and you can look at um, other verticals where you're basically, you know, if you're uh, booking, you know, a, a flight or a trip. As part of that regular flow, you'll be offered uh, a FAE travel insurance, for example. And that's that's a clever way, I think, to reduce the need to kind of uh, pay uh, advertisers and chasing that N plus one consumer by leveraging that type of uh, of channels, et cetera. And my, my only advice, there, there are different ways to go around it, but my, my one advice is, and the way we think about kind of direct-to-consumer businesses is, does this company have any type of a distribution edge that will make it uh, scalable? And I think, again, every entrepreneur needs to think in that, uh, in that framework. Yeah. And as we get closer to winding down here, uh, I know we touched on a lot of different areas in the realm of fintech. Which areas are you most excited about and how has that changed over the years? Yeah, so I think uh, right now I mentioned uh, a couple already. So just briefly, you know, embedded finance, uh, the types of uh, Alvier, I think InsureTech 2.0 is basically going after new verticals or categories, not just about digital transformation that have been commoditized. Uh, and that's the example of uh, of Fay. And actually, I mentioned a third around uh, Web3 infrastructure uh, that I'm uh, that I'm focused on. The, the one I want to maybe double click on for a minute or two is uh, is around vertical fintech. It's basically the ability, and I mentioned it at the very beginning, you know, fintech is now kind of disrupting, you know, many large incumbent industries. You mentioned it with Landa, with real estate, but if you think about different verticals where you can disrupt them with fintech services, uh, we've made interesting plays both in healthcare and in the music industries, even kind of uh, buying catalogs from uh, emerging artists. Uh, but if I go to healthcare, you know, we incubated a company called PayZen. I wanted to do something in the healthcare space in the U.S. for a long time. You know, it's a $4 trillion industry. I think the audience would agree it's a little bit broken, right? You uh, you go and, God forbid, uh, get uh, get some treatment. Even if you're insured, high FICO score and employed, you start getting letters that, uh, uh, you know, this is not a bill. This is not a bill. This is not a bill. And, you know, nine months later, you get a bill. You're like, what, what is this for? There is no transparency. Um, no payment plans, no real way to communicate. And the reason behind it is that 
providers, they're a point of care, right? They care about, you know, taking care of you medically, uh, but they're not a point of sale, right? They're not used to, hey, I'm buying a can of Coke um, that costs whatever, three, four, five dollars. Uh, you know, it is what it is. So Payzen is really building this uh, triangle where they go to providers and they tell them, look, we're going to prepay you from some of that uh, uh, money that is owned to you and you're doing a very poor job collecting. So you have a benefit of collecting almost 3x what you used to collect, right? So the hospitals feel feel good about this. They have the cash to continue and give care uh, to people. The patients, on the other hand, they get 0% APR, no fees payment plans. So you have you have this visibility, you have communication, you have payment plans that you can, you know, you owe $1,200, you can pay $100 per month and um, and life is good and you become, you know, healthcare become more uh, affordable and accessible. And the third, you know, you bring a capital source that uh, kind of takes a little bit of this balance sheet risk. Uh, we brought in uh, Viola Credit, our sister fund, and Payson kind of sits in the middle, right? So you have a win-win-win for everybody where you're basically making healthcare more affordable, more accessible. The providers, the hospitals win, the patients win, the credit provider uh, wins, and of course, Payson facilitates all of that. And that's a play, you know, we, we want to continue and make uh, across many different verticals. Love that. And love, love the passion you have for all of your portfolio companies, really, uh, as we say in Hebrew, kol, kol all the respect. And I guess now that we're wrapping up, uh, I'm, I'm trying to start this thing here at the Warren Fintech podcast called the lightning round, where yeah. quick, I ask quick questions and you give quick answers. Um, sure. sure. So first question, uh, space, uh, a vertical that you're most passionate about, fintech or non-fintech? Yeah, I'm going to go with vertical fintech. Bring me on any industry that hasn't been disrupted by fintech, and I'll love to incubate it. Which podcasts do you listen to? Um, I like the All In, you know, with uh, Chamath, Jason, and Sachs. Um, I think it's very balanced. It's good. It's kind of a thing I listen to in uh, in the car. Um, I think it's great. If you if you don't listen to it, I, I recommend it. He was he was actually on campus a couple of weeks ago at Warden. Any suggestions for content for someone looking to learn more about any of the industries we talked about? Um, so maybe I'll tie to some of the things I've, I've said earlier. Look, I, again, as an ex-banker, uh, I spoke about this IPO mindset, right, from the, from the very beginning, from the get-go. I know for some, it will sound too far-fetched, but really some of my founders, when I send them initiating coverage reports about their comps and about the uh, their industry, et cetera, I think it opens up their, their minds, their horizons, and is giving them ideas and I think demonstrates what scale companies look like and what the street thinks about. Um, and I think it brings good things to, uh, to founders. So if you haven't done that yet, you know, pick uh, uh, one of the big banks' uh, research report and, and, and read through those initiating coverage reports. I think you'll learn a ton. I love that. And a top book recommendation. So... Um, I'll give you one that is actually non-finance, non-fintech. Uh, I don't know if, if the audience knows him. I think he actually did some stuff at Wharton as well, but uh, Professor uh, Harari. Uh, so he has this book, the first one of, the, of a trio called uh, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Um, it's a beautiful book. I think it gives a very good perspective about you know life and our very small role in this chain of, uh, of evolution and how to kind of think about you know the the big things that could interrupt our our um, our beautiful world, whether it's uh, diseases or wars or things like that, and how lucky we are in this day and age to actually and privileged uh, to live in um in an era that is 
uh, relatively stable and uh, and safe. Um, and let's hope we we keep it this way with everything that is going on in the world. Cool. Thanks. Well, thanks so much, Omri, for your time, and thanks for speaking with us at the Wharton FinTech Podcast. My uh, my pleasure, Josh. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it was fun, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media, or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast. Or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium, at Warren Fintech. And there you can find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Saria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. Thank you.